and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films I watch, mainly art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about Olivier Assayas's Clouds of Sils Maria from 2014. It's a complex film starring Juliette Binoche as Maria Enders, an actress who shot to stardom in her youth when she acted in a play about an older woman who was seduced by a younger woman. 20 years ago, she played the younger woman, but now in a revival of the play, she is set to play the older woman. This role brings up her fears about aging and becoming irrelevant. Kristen Stewart stars alongside Binoche as an assistant to Maria Enders. To me, the heart of the film is the complicated relationship between these two women and the different ways they see life in the world. I also think this is a fascinating film about the process that an actress undergoes in order to get into character. I talk about all that and so much more. There are spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you could follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. I'd like to tell you about one of my favorite streaming sites that I've been loving for a while. It's called Ovid, that's O-V-I-D, and it features some of my favorite art house and independent films. The site is a partnership between several art house distributors, including Icarus Films, Grasshopper Film, and Women Make Movies. There are a wide variety of films in Ovid's catalog, from French thrillers to documentaries about history and the arts. As sites like Netflix and Hulu become more corporate and homogenous, I think it's crucial to have independent sites that give us a greater diversity of cinema. The site includes several films by Tracy Moffat, including Bedevil, the first feature film to be directed by an aboriginal Australian woman. There's Pedro Costa's dreamy and haunting Casa de Lava, and there's also The Seasons in Cansey, a thought-provoking documentary about the legendary art critic John Berger. Ovid has all these films and hundreds more. I really think Think those of you who listen to and enjoy this podcast would love this streaming site. You can use the code CINEMA to get your first month for free. Go to ovid.tv, that's O-V-I-D TV, to start watching. In the show notes of this episode, I also have a link to a curated selection of my favorite films on the site. So I won't go on any longer. Here's my episode about Clouds of Sils Maria.
Sometimes at the beginning of episodes, I like to talk about more general things, things going on in my life that tend to be related to film in some way. Longtime listeners know that I do this sometimes, so there are a few things I want to talk about just, and then I will talk about the film Clouds of Sils Maria. I wanted to share mainly a revelation that I had recently that has just blown my mind. And I don't know why it's blown my mind. It's probably ridiculous that it has, but I've just been thinking about it and thinking about it. So I did this Ask Me Anything through Instagram. If you're on Instagram, I am on there. Search for me at Her Head in Films. I try to keep my feed very classy. (laughs) and well curated and beautiful with beautiful screenshots that I take of the films that I watch. I don't know if any of you know this, but when I watch films on my computer, on my laptop, I take a lot of screenshots. And if any of you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, when I share screenshots, those are images that I have taken of a film as I'm watching it. And in a way, I know this is silly, but it means a lot to me to take those screenshots and to share them. I think that watching films on your computer or your laptop, it kind of changes your relationship to a film. It's very different than watching it in a theater or watching it on your television in your living room. For me, it is because I am an active viewer of the film, I think. And if a film is beautiful, if it's visually compelling to me, or with the the world cinema, the foreign films, where they have subtitles, I'll take screenshots of certain scenes, certain dialogue, if the language is speaking to me and something is being said in the film that I find meaningful or moving. So I feel more engaged with a film when I'm watching it on my laptop. And I see these screenshots or screen captures or whatever you want to call it, I see them almost as memories of the film. Like I will actually go through my screenshots and look at them, almost relive the film. And I love choosing images from the films to share on social media. I know it sounds really silly that that matters to me, that I enjoy it, that I think a lot about it, that I put time into it. That's just how I am. (laughs) I don't know why it's so important to me, but I put a lot of thought and attention and detail into what images of a film I share on social media. Because for me, I think that the images from a film, when you share them, other people will see them. All it takes is one image to spark an interest and to get somebody wanting to see that film. I know that it happens to me all the time. I will see images from a film that somebody shares on Tumblr or Instagram or Twitter and I'll think to myself, I have to see that film now because the image speaks to me. I love taking screenshots. They are almost like my memories of the film. They represent scenes and moments of a film that I want want to preserve and capture and remember. I put a lot of thought into my feed on Instagram. I know it's ridiculous. And then in the stories on Instagram, I'm a little bit more looser and freer and probably, you know, boring (laughs) as well. So I did in my stories on Instagram, I did a ask me anything where I was like, you know, ask me things. I don't know why I do these because I feel like the least interesting person on the planet, like, I don't even know what to answer sometimes when people ask me things, but a really lovely listener asked me about my degree 
when I was in college. Like, what did, what did I major in? How did I, how do I feel about the experience, I guess, about college and things like that? And I gave sort of like a long reply, kind of. But later on, I got to thinking about that question and I got to thinking about college. I've said this many times on the podcast that I became a cinephile in 2011. And that was when I was in college. I went to a university from 2010 to 2014. In 2011, I started to really get into art house cinema, European art house cinema. I was more, I was like 22 years old at the time, my early 20s when this happened. And I majored in English literature and women's studies. I double majored and that's what my degrees are in, my Bachelor of Arts. I've always talked about this, that I became a cinephile when I was in college in the early 2010s. And it just clicked for me after, you know, answering this question and thinking about it, that college really was the catalyst for me becoming a cinephile. During that time of my life, I think I was searching or in need of the art form of cinema. My college years were really hard. I will be honest with you. I know most people have these really great stories about how they find their best friends. They find the love of their life. (laughs) They find their soulmates. Everybody seems to have the most positive (laughs) stories about college. And that didn't happen for me. It really is the story of my life. The story of my life is loneliness, having trouble connecting with people. And sometimes I think to myself, I think, am I lacking something? Am I missing something? Why is it so hard for me to connect to people? And I really don't know. And if I didn't have this podcast, and if I didn't have writing as ways to express myself and to share my inner world with people, I think I would struggle even more. Because honestly, I say things on this podcast, and I share things on it that I guess I wish I could tell another person. Like I wish I could tell a group of friends or a best friend or something that doesn't exist for me. And I'm just always alone, you know, and I always struggle with loneliness. And that was my experience in college. I tried to connect with people. I tried to go to some social events. I'm really introverted. I have social anxiety. So interacting with people is hard for me. The way I am on these episodes, that's not who I am when a person is right in front of me. It's very different to talk into a microphone by yourself in your bedroom than to be in a social environment with people around you. And I've always struggled with it and I've always just failed. at it. That's how college was. It was just, I was really alone. I was away from home for the first time in my life. So I didn't have that support. I didn't have my mom. I was away from her. It was a difficult experience. I didn't enjoy studying literature as much as I thought I would. I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't have any plans for some big career. I've just always felt lost. A part of me is like, if I could go back, I probably wouldn't have gone to college. I'm in debt because of it. (laughs) It didn't make much of a difference when it came to getting a job. And, you know, I just live in the rural South. Maybe if I lived in a big city, having a four-year college 
degree would matter. It doesn't really matter when you're living in the rural South. <laughs> like it didn't open any doors for me or anything like that. But people told me to go to college. I thought that's what I should do. I had worked at a factory for a little while and I never wanted to go back to working in a factory again. It was so hard on my body. It was so like soul crushing and soul destroying. And I thought, well, I, I got to go to college. Maybe that's my step to upward mobility or economic mobility, but it hasn't necessarily led to that. I'm just in a lot of debt. I'm drifting. I'm lost. I don't necessarily know why I went. I don't know why I majored in those things. I don't know. When I think back on it, I'm not saying the whole experience was worthless or anything like that, but I guess, yes, if I wanted to be a lawyer, if I wanted to be a doctor, if I wanted to even be a teacher, it would have made sense for me to go. But when I look back on it now, I'm like, should I have gone? Did I make a huge mistake to take on this debt to do all this? I don't know. I just don't know. I was lonely. I struggled with anxiety. I was basically just in my room all the time. I would leave to go to classes and then I would just go right back to my dorm room or my on-campus apartment that I was in and I would just stay in my room. And I would listen to music and be on Tumblr too much and on social media. And I started to watch films. Like that is why I started to watch films because I was alone and because I was isolated and I couldn't connect to people and I couldn't, I couldn't figure out my life. Right. And I just felt like a mess and I felt like I didn't fit and I didn't belong. And so when I think back on that time in my life, I feel a lot of sadness. I, I just, that whole time in my life was sad because of the loneliness. So I think I was primed for film and I was ready and open to cinema as a result. And if I had not gone to college and if I hadn't felt that isolation and that loneliness, I don't know if I would have become a cinephile, honestly. I think that I was hungry for something. I think I was desperate for something and I was searching for something thing that I eventually found in film. And I guess I felt a connection to life through film and I felt a connection to myself. It gave me something that I couldn't find in my everyday life. And I had just never put the two together. Like I knew, okay, I was in college and I started watching films. I never thought that deeply about it. And I never realized that college was the catalyst. College was the reason I became a cinephile. It is the reason that I was open to these films, that I needed them because they gave me pleasure and they gave me a connection to people and to life that I couldn't find in my everyday life. And maybe in a way, film saved me. I mean, by the end, when I graduated college, I was just so done with it and tired of it. I think if I could go back, I would not have, have studied literature at all. It just didn't connect. I, I didn't connect with the way that literature was talked about in an academic environment. It's hard because for me, art is personal and it's emotional. And I'm not good at the intellectual stuff. I'm not good at theory. I'm not good at those things at all. I'm not saying I'm stupid, but I am 
deeply emotional. And when it comes to art, I don't go to art to just like have intellectual discussions about it. I go to art to feel something, to feel some kind of transcendence or some kind of deeper meaning. And I'm always in search of that. I don't think that was the right choice for me. Actually, the classes that I really enjoyed in college were my women's studies classes. I absolutely loved studying women's literature and I loved sociology and I loved um, anything to do with feminism and women's lives and women's contributions, right? And women's history. So those were the classes that I really, by the end of my college experience, I absolutely adored. I loved classes about history and learning about the world around me. I enjoyed that so much more than my literature classes. I don't know if it was because we were looking at older literature. I'm more of a 20th century gal. (laughs) I'm more into modernism and onward. So it was really hard for me to get into things that were medieval or the 1800s. Not saying I'll never read those books, of course, you know, but it's not what I gravitate to. It's not what I'm moved by emotionally. So maybe that was it. I don't know. Maybe if I'd gotten to read Shirley Jackson and Marguerite Dura and Sylvia Plath, and Virginia Woolf, maybe I would have enjoyed those classes more. I don't know, college was such a strange experience for me. I went into it one way and I think I came out another way. I don't know if I would have studied film if I could go back and say I was already a cinephile before I got into college instead of during. Would I have studied film? I don't know. I don't know if I would have taken any film classes because for me, film really is about love and appreciation and pleasure and joy and just life. I wouldn't want to, I just wouldn't want to tarnish it or take it into that direction of, well, now you have to write an essay about this film and you have to do this and and make it work or make it a chore. Like I want to keep it as a passion. I want to keep it as something that I enjoy, something that saves me and helps me through life and, and all of that. If I could go back, I don't even know what I would study. I'm still lost, y'all. I'm like so freaking lost. I feel like I have so much to give. I feel like I feel so much and I want to do so much, but then I just get so overwhelmed. I get so overwhelmed by life and my emotions and I don't know, but I became a cinephile because of college. That is why. (laughs) And that was a big revelation to me to figure that out and to be like, oh, this is why I started to fall in love with film. Like, why did I fall in love with film at that particular time when I was in my early 20s? Why didn't it happen when I was younger or something like that? Or why didn't it happen later? It was just the perfect confluence of events where I am sad and lonely and isolated. I have the time, you know, I'm in college and I just was able to watch these films and to fall in love with them. And so in a way, films were my solace, my salvation, my comfort through a time in my life when I felt like I didn't really have anything and I felt really lost and I I felt really alienated from the world around me. It was a big revelation to figure that out for myself. I'd never put that together and realized it. But college was the catalyst for my cinephilia. I was open to it at that time and I needed it for a specific reason. And I can see that now and I couldn't see it until recently. 
when I was thinking about it. I mean, maybe those of you who are listening, maybe I would ask you to think about when did you become a cinephile and why? Were there circumstances in your life, maybe difficult circumstances, that led you to feel this intense connection with cinema that you hadn't felt before? Like, I liked film. I took a film appreciation class when I was in high school where we watched Hitchcock and Orson Welles and I fell in love with film and I saw it as an art form, but I wouldn't have called myself a cinephile when I was in high school. It wasn't until college where I just got so obsessed. I was watching probably a film a day or more. I mean, I would just watch films and watch films and a lot of the films that I've covered on this podcast are ones that I watched in those early years. In two 2011 and 2012 when I was just watching all these different directors from Kishlovsky to Bergman to Truffaut to Godard to Varda all these different people and I was just inhaling films <laughs> inhaling cinema it was like breath to me at that time and I realized that it was because of the circumstances and when I started this podcast in 2016 late 2016 I had gone through another upheaval in my life which was that I had moved I had um, lost my childhood home and moved to another state and that was a huge destabilizing event in my life. It was a devastating event. Of course, that becomes the foundation of this podcast. That's what sparks my desire to create this podcast was to have an outlet to talk about film. I feel like this is a theme in my life where when I am going through things, that I can't deal with or that I can't process. I do two things and it's so contradictory. I go deeper into myself. I recoil into myself. And at the same time, I try to find ways to connect. So when I was in college and I was isolated, I went very deeply into myself and I was in my room isolated from the world. But the way that I tried to connect was to watch these films. And that's what created a sense of connection for me. And also around that time, I was on Tumblr as well. And I had more of a literary Tumblr at the time. And I would write and blog. So I was also writing. And that was a way that I was trying to reach out when I was on Tumblr back then. And then when I went through that really destabilizing move and started this podcast, I went within myself and I was really struggling. But creating the podcast and creating the episodes, that was how I was trying to connect. So anytime I go through things in my life, as devastating as they are, as difficult as they are, it's almost like a coping mechanism of mine to try to connect through it, to try to share what I'm going through, to try to share my emotions and my feelings. And sometimes I feel like that's my purpose in life, but that's what makes it so hard to live for me is that my purpose in life is not to be like a doctor or, you know, something where I can produce something and make money from it. Or here in this world, we are so defined by our career and the money we make and all of this stuff. And you have to be practical. And and it's like, for me, my purpose in life, or I feel like it is, is to share my experiences, to share my voice, to share what I've been through in the hopes that 
it it reaches somebody else and that they can feel less alone. And I guess I do that through this podcast. I used to do it more through blogging and writing. I, I tend to just write in my diary now. I don't share my writing as much online anymore. But these episodes are like how I've been trying to connect to the world now. And so, I mean, maybe that's a good coping mechanism to have. I think it's what helps keep me alive and I think it helps me keep going is to find an outlet, to find a way to connect, to find a way to share, to find a way to take what I have suffered or what I'm going through and to do something with it and to create something out of it. Like, I feel like I've always tried to do that. I've always just tried to connect and often I find connection through art. That's been the primary thing, but I think doing these episodes and now maybe through social media, I try to connect a bit too, but I don't think it's as deep as it is on this, on the podcast when I'm talking and really sharing myself. I'm just always trying to connect (laughs) and I try to stay open and I try to stay tender, but there's this part of me that still struggles with that. And I was thinking about Ingmar Bergman's film Summer Interlude. I was thinking about it recently. I'm just going to talk about this and then I'll wrap up. I was just thinking about this film. I have an episode about it. I have no idea what I said in that episode a few years ago. I think it was 2018 when it was the 100th anniversary of his birth. I love Summer Summer Interlude. Just the more I think about it, I love it so much. And it's about this girl who goes through a very devastating loss when she's a teenager and about how as a result, that loss leads her to really wall herself off from the world and from other people. She grows colder. She grows harder against the world. She's hardened by what she's been through. And I thought about recently how that's really what I have done for about half my life now. I'm 31 and I lost my dad when I was 16 years old, when I was a teenager. I lost my dad and then I lost my grandmother and then I lost my uncle within a three-year period. You know, before I was even 20 years old, three people in my life had died. The most devastating was my father's death. We were close. He was like my best friend. And as a result of that loss and of all those losses together, I just crumbled. I just disintegrated and it caused really bad anxiety and depression for me so much that I've been through. I've also had health issues that I've struggled with for over a decade. So I have chronic illness that I add on to all that as well. I went through all that and I was alone and there was nobody there to help me. I mean, my mom was there and we're very close, but my mom was suffering too. We were both suffering and we did everything we could to be there for each other, but I didn't have friends. I didn't have family and a big support system. The people who should have cared and the people who should have been there were not. So I stopped being able to trust people and I stopped being able to be open to the world. And I did wall myself off. I did put up these huge walls and I retreated from the world. I turned away from it. That's what I did. And I blocked everything out and I blocked people out and I stopped trying to love. I stopped trying to connect. I stopped trying to be open to anything. I just said, you know what? I don't want that anymore. I don't want people because they hurt me and they can't be there for me. And so I don't want them. I don't want any of that. I'm just going to be alone and accept it 
and I'm gonna put all these walls up and I'm gonna retreat and now I'm 31 years old and I don't have a lot to show for it. (laughs) You know, I don't have lots of friends and family and people who love me and I just think, what have I done? What have I done? And why didn't I try harder? Why didn't I stay open? Why didn't I try harder, you know, to connect with people? Even though I feel like I've done everything that I can do, like I don't know what more I could have done, but maybe there's something, right? And I just realized that I have turned away from the world and I shut the world out. It has made me angry and it has made me bitter. And I have felt myself getting harder and more calcified. I guess you could say. And I never wanted to be like that. I've never, ever wanted to be like that. And so I feel like the girl in Summer Interlude, where I've put up these walls and I've hurt myself in the process because I've shut out. You know, when you put up those walls, you shut out the bad, but you shut out the good too. And I've shut all of that out. And I guess I'm in the process right now of trying to deconstruct those walls and take them down and try to heal myself or repair myself and open myself back up to people. I don't do it often. I'm very selective about who I let in, who I open up to. I'm an open book and I'm very like honest and vulnerable on these episodes, but I'm also very selective about who I trust and who I open up to. I don't know, thinking about that film, I was like, I really have retreated and recoiled. And how long can I keep doing that? How long can I sustain that? And then you add on the pandemic and thinking about it and and going through something so difficult. I feel like I want to use this experience to try to open myself back up to the world and to make sure that I am not building up those walls and living inside those walls anymore. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be that person. I want to be open. I want to be soft. I want to be tender. I want to be kind. I want to be giving. I want to give without expecting to receive. I want to give just to give. I want to be there for other people. And I guess I just am trying to open myself up again to people because I have been hurt. I've been hurt a lot by people. So, I mean, I still have to be protective. I feel like trust has to be earned. And I do feel like you shouldn't just give it to anybody who comes along. (laughs) And people have to earn that. You can't let everybody in. You can't open your heart to everybody. But I just want to live in a way where I am more open and where I'm trying more to make those connections with people. Whereas I feel like for a while now I've blocked that out and I haven't been open to it or I haven't been able to. But um, so I think this is just an example of how a film can help you see yourself in a different way and see maybe something you're doing wrong, something destructive that you're doing, and to maybe try to change that behavior and to do better and to try to not make those mistakes. Like the girl in Summer Interlude, that's what she did. She walled herself off from the world and it made her angry and it made her bitter and resentful. I I have felt that happening to me. I have felt that coldness seeping into me and I don't like it and I don't want to be that person and I don't want to let the world do that to me. I, I don't want to. So I was just thinking about that and how I'm going through a period in my life where I want to open myself back up to life 
and I want to live again because I feel like for over a decade now since my dad died I've not been living I've been surviving I've been getting through (laughs) I've been just crawling drowning (laughs) I have not been living I'm not there yet it's gonna take a lot of work I'm trying to do things to make it happen but I want to live I really want to live. I don't want to just survive and I don't want to be so isolated and alone either. I want to try to make those connections with people. It feels really overwhelming and daunting right now. I don't know how I'm going to do it. There's a lot that I have to do to get to that place, but I'm taking the first steps. I guess that's what I'm saying. And thinking about summer interlude just kind of crystallized that for me. So I just wanted to share that. (laughs) I know it doesn't have anything to do with Clouds of Sils Maria, but it's some film related things that I have been thinking about lately. And I thought maybe that me sharing some of what I'm going through or what I'm feeling, maybe it could help you in some way or make you think of something in a different way or something like that. Who knows? (laughs) So I just wanted to share some of that. And now I will talk about Clouds of Sils Maria. While preparing to do this episode, I've not been in the greatest place physically or emotionally, psychologically. It took me a really long time to watch the film. It's just been hard to make my brain function properly and to make it do what I want it to do. So in a way, I don't know if this is going to be my best episode ever, if it's going to be as insightful as I want it to be, but it just has to be what it is. And I wanted to talk about this film. I really loved it when I first saw it six years ago when it first came out. And I think it's a fascinating portrait of an actress, of what it means to be an actress, the process that a woman has to go through to really create a character on on a stage or on the screen. And it's also about these tangled relationships between women as well. I think if you love Clouds of Sils Maria, you should definitely check out a film called Opening Night by John Cassavetes. It's from 1977. I have an episode about it. And every month right now, as I do the podcast, every month I choose two films and they have some theme in common. They have some kind of connection. I chose to pair together Opening Night with Clouds of Sils Maria. And when I pair films together, I imagine them as possible double features if you wanted to do that. So if you like Opening Night, you should watch Clouds of Sils Maria. If you like Clouds of Sils Maria, you should watch Opening Night. I don't know if Opening Night was an inspiration for Asayas, but there are some similarities there, right? So he was more inspired by The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant by Fassbender and also by um, Persona which is by Ingmar Bergman. But I definitely see some parallels between opening night and this film. And you may hear me bring that up throughout the episode. I am not going to say Olivier Assayas' last name a lot in this 
episode. I feel so nervous even saying it right now. I will just refer to him as Olivier because that's a lot easier for me. So this episode may not be everything I dreamed of and what I wanted it to be because my body and my mind just have limits and I'm going through a lot right now in my life. My mom's health is not great and I'm taking care of her on top of working, on top of taking care of the house, and I just have a lot on me. I do these episodes usually on the weekends when I have time, but lately I've just not been feeling well and I've been extremely tired, very fatigued. I deal with that anyways. So I'm doing my best with this episode and I apologize if it isn't as great as I wanted it to be. It just has to be what it is and um, I hope that it'll be good enough (laughs) for those of you who are listening. I try not to put too much pressure on myself with these episodes but I do want to put out decent quality. At the same time I can't be a perfectionist really because I'm human and I'm flawed and I am imperfect so I do my best and that's the best that I can do. I don't have a lot of like behind the scenes information to share with you about this film. There's a few extras on the Criterion Collection edition of the film, but I didn't think it was worth doing like a separate section of behind the scenes stuff. I do think that Juliette Binoche had Olivier write this film for her. She does talk in interviews about how when she did Summer Hours with him, which is a really good film that I've seen, that she felt a distance from him. She didn't have a big role. It was more of an ensemble film. She didn't get to have much of a relationship with him, and so she wanted him to create a film for her. And so he really built this character around her in a lot of ways. And they first worked together in the 1980s when she starred in an Andre Teshine film called Rendezvous. And I've seen it. I saw it many years ago. It was probably one of the first Juliette Binoche films I had ever seen. I remember it being very good. I remember liking it, but I can't remember a whole lot about it. Um, Olivier wrote the script for that film, so that was the first time that they worked together. It was Juliette Binoche's first starring role, really, and it put her on the map. It was a big sensation, I believe. And so then they later worked together on Summer Hours. And now with Clouds of Sils Maria, he really built this role for her, which is what she wanted. She wanted him to explore the feminine. She wanted him to create female characters that were really compelling. And I think he did. He was inspired when he saw an old film about the Maloya snake in Sils Maria, Switzerland. And this is the same short film, or we see snippets or clips of it in Clouds of Sils Maria itself. And he was just fascinated by that film, and he felt that it spoke to the passage of time. Like, here is this film that's a hundred years old, documenting a natural occurrence that still happens a century later. And so that was his starting point. And then he built the film around that and then created these characters. So our cast is Juliette Binoche as Maria Enders, Kristen Stewart as Valentine. And I do apologize if at times I call her Valentine, because <laughs> that's the way it's spelled, but it's pronounced Valentine in the film. And then Chloe Grace Moretz as Joanne. These are really our three main characters, our main women. And more, even more so, I would just say Maria and Valentine are really the heart of the film and their relationship. I think that's what 
drew me to the film and I think it's what stayed with me about the film was the relationship between these two women and Joanne has a little bit of a part she's certainly there and she plays her role but obviously Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart anchor this film and the relationship that they have is fascinating and complicated and messy and watching this for a second time that's what draws me in always is that relationship and um, it has so many layers to it because I think there's genuine affection there but then it's also like a transactional relationship because Valentine is Maria's personal assistant I mean she's literally being paid to do this work and to to be there for Maria in a way so there's something transactional there but then there's also something affectionate and real and natural as I go through this episode, I'm going to talk about Maria and her relationships with other people. This is kind of how I structured my episode on opening night because the heart of opening night is one woman and she's doing a play and the play is about a woman who's aging and she's having trouble getting into the character. She's having trouble connecting to the character. And I sort of structured my episode around her relationships to different people in the play or, or in the film. And I wanted to do the same with Clouds of Sils Maria because Maria Enders is the heart of the film. She is the main focus. And Valentine is important too, but it's really about Maria and how her relationships with people affect her and shape her life and all of that. The big relationship at the beginning is the one she has with Wilhelm Melchior, who was the director um, or the man who discovered her and who she owes her career to. The opening scene is like one of the best. And it's interesting when you see a film years, you know, in years past, like what stays with you? What scenes stay with you? And for me with Clouds of Sils Maria, the train scene stays with me. The final scene definitely stays with me. And the nature part of it stayed with me of the clouds and the mountains and Maria out hiking and those were aspects of the film that really stuck with me. For some reason, I just always remembered the train scene, especially when she's told that Wilhelm is dead and how stunning that is and, and shocking it is to her. This train, train scene is really important in the film. There's like a chaos about it almost because so much is happening. Uh, the train's moving and you know, they're taking phone calls and this and that. There's like so much happening. We find out that Maria is going through a divorce, right? We see that she's tired of acting in blockbusters and using a green screen. And she even talks about Google and how it's gotten too powerful. So we get like little snippets of info in this scene. And we see that she's set to accept this award for a reclusive director named Wilhelm Melchior, who discovered her and put her in his play Maloya Snake when she was only 18 years old. This is the play that started her career. She also ended up starring in the film version. This play is central to the film Maloya Snake. This play is based on the the bitter tears of Petra von Kant, like an older woman's relationship with her younger assistant. That's the play that uh, Maria Enders did when she was younger. And she, and when she was younger, 20 years ago, she played the role of the young woman 
And then once she decides to do the play now, because it's being brought back to the stage by another director, now she's going to play the older character and how that mentally and psychologically affects her. This is like opening night. It has a play within a film. We don't see much of the play on the stage, but we do hear lines from it through a lot of scenes of them rehearsing this play. And that's something that happens in opening night too, where we get we get dialogue, we get scenes and things like that, even though we don't get the full play. So this is very psychologically unsettling for Maria to play the older woman in that production rather than the younger girl. And that's what she struggles with throughout the film is her aging, her getting older, her playing a more maybe in her eyes pathetic or sadistic character instead of the young ingenue. In this film, Juliette Binoche was around 50 years old when she was doing this film. And Kristen Stewart, who plays Valentine, was about in her early 20s. And then Chloe Grace Moretz was in her late teens. So Juliette Binoche is like double the age of both of these young women. So that's an interesting dynamic as well. I love this scene that's set on the train. And like I said, it stayed with me. Trains are like very confining and even claustrophobic. There's not a lot of personal space. So you see these characters really um, sort of together in a tight space. Valentine has to tell Maria that Wilhelm has died and she just writes it on a piece of paper and holds it up while Maria is on the phone with her ex-husband's lawyer. Maria is absolutely stunned by this. But what can she do? This is the man that put her on the map. This is the man who is the reason she has a career at all. So her relationship with him is very important. She's about to accept an award for him, and then now he's dead. Later on, we learn that he had some kind of terminal illness, and that he actually committed suicide. Out in Sils Maria, really in the same place, it's, it's near the Maloya Snake, which is this cloud formation, and I'll talk about that later. The Maloya Snake itself is a cloud formation in Sils Maria. And, but it's also the name of the play that Maria is known for, for acting in and that really started her career two decades previously. At the time on the train, she thinks he died of a heart attack, but she later learns that he had a terminal illness and he committed suicide. We don't know as much, but there is Maria's relationship with Wilhelm. It's not explored as much as her relationship with, say, Joanne or Valentine, but it's there. And to me, it sort of lingers in the film is her relationship with him and what exactly was there between them, her feelings for him, how well did she really know him. I think there's a scene that she has with Valentine at one time in the film where she says that he was attracted to her. She was only 18 or 19 years old when she played Sigrid in Maloya Snake, the play and the film, she was only 18 and he was attracted to her. And she says that she was attracted to him too, but that they never acted on that attraction. It probably fueled their art. It probably fueled their working relationship, right? And she never wanted to endanger that. So her relationship with Wilhelm is, 
it's a bit um, amorphous and we don't know a lot about it. But I think it's clear she has affection for him. She feels like she owes her career to him. It kind of reminded me of like the different relationships between directors and their muses, I guess you would call them. You think about, for instance, Francois Truffaut and Jean Moreau, or I think of Michelangelo Antonioni and Monica Vitti, or I think about um, Jean-Luc Godard and Anna Karina. So those are some that come to mind for me of like relationships between directors and their actresses, or even John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins. And I talk about them in my episode on opening night. It's kind of, I've just always been kind of fascinated by the relationship that a director has with an actress and that relationship. And sometimes it's romantic. All the ones that I mentioned were romantic. I'm pretty sure Truffaut and Moreau did have um, a relationship. So often it is romantic, it is sexual, and that's what fuels the art. That's what fuels those films. I'm, I'm just kind of fascinated by that. A part of me wishes the film had dug into that a little bit more. But um, I think that Wilhelm haunts the film in a lot of ways. He is the one that wrote Maloya Snake. He's the one that helped start Maria's career. So he just sort of lingers, I think, throughout the film. As I said, the most compelling relationship in this film is between Maria and Valentine. It is one of affection. It's obviously one of like a mentorship of like an older woman and a younger woman. I think what's interesting about the, there's a lot of interesting things about their relationship that I want to talk about. One of them is that usually you would think that the older woman in this friendship, I mean, I would call it a friendship maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of like a friendship. But you would think the older woman in this friendship would um, would be the one with like lots of wisdom and insight and maturity. And not that Maria doesn't have those things. But I feel like throughout the film, Valentine is the one who has a lot of insight for her age. She's in her early 20s. She just is very mature and she has a lot of ideas and she has a very strong identity and sense of herself and she shares her opinions freely and they often clash with Maria, uh, Maria's opinions or Maria's ideas. And I feel like uh, in the relationship, Valentine almost has the more wisdom and insight than Maria. I think Kristen Stewart is very natural in this role. And I remember seeing her in this film and for the first time thinking, wow, she can really act. Like, I saw her as an actress for the first time in this film. Now, she had been in some dramatic roles. She was like in Into the Wild and she was in The Runaways where she played Joan Jett. So she had been in a few films post-Twilight because she was mainly known for the Twilight films. There was like, what, five of them? In a very short period of time, she became very famous. She struggled with that fame, with her public image, right? She didn't do anything as crazy as Joanne Ellis does in in this film, played by Chloe Grace Moretz. But Kristen Stewart certainly had to deal with tabloids and paparazzi and all kinds of stuff like that. And I don't think she was taken that seriously as an actress, even though I've seen her in roles since she was a child, whether it was Panic Room or Speak or, like I said, Into the Wild. So she's she had some serious roles. But for me, this was really the first film where I was like, 
she's amazing. I was really impressed with her and I have no criticisms of her at all in this film. I think she fits the role perfectly. She's so natural in it. I mean, sometimes I felt like I was just watching Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart hang out and talk, right? Like (laughs) I almost felt like they weren't actresses, but of course they were. So this is really one of those films where she got a substantial role. She got substantial mature material to show that she's a good actress. I think she's going to have an interesting career. She really impressed me in this. Even though Valentine is the younger, the young one in this relationship, she's the nurturer. She's the one who takes care of Maria, like I said. And that's because she's a personal assistant. So she has to like do everything for Maria in a lot of ways. And Maria is very dependent on her as a result. Valentine does everything for Maria. She even pumps her gas, drives her around, makes her appointments. Their lives are very enmeshed. It doesn't even feel like uh, that Valentine has her own life. She's always living in service of Maria and facilitating Maria's life, making Maria's life easy and and making sure everything's done for her. And then it doesn't seem like Valentine has like a ton of time to herself. There is a theater director named Klaus and he wants to stage a revival of the Maloya Snake play that Wilhelm Melchior did 20 years previously. And he is the one that goes to Maria about doing the play. And instead of playing Sigrid in the film, the young 18-year-old, he wants her to be Helena. And Helena is the older woman. She's a boss at a company and Sigrid is her assistant. And she becomes obsessed with Sigrid, falls in love, deeply falls in love with Sigrid. And her sexual romantic obsession eventually leads her to commit suicide or so we're supposed to assume. In reality, she goes for a hike and she never comes back. So it's not clear if she committed suicide, but that's the way Maria, I think, interprets it, that she ends up killing herself. And Valentine encourages Maria to do the play. She says that Klaus is one of the best directors or play directors of his generation and that he is just amazing. Klaus meets with Maria. He wants her to play Helena, but Maria is so wrapped up in her memories of playing Sigrid. She can't imagine playing Helena. It's like inconceivable to her. She sees Sigrid as free, as the free character, and she identifies with that freedom. She doesn't really identify with um, Helena, who is like 40, runs a company, and ends up falling in love with this younger woman who doesn't love her back and um, leads to her probable suicide. She thinks Helena is attracted to Sigrid because of her youth. And, And Maria insists that just because she is Helena's age now doesn't mean that she can play her, doesn't mean that she understands her. And Maria sees the character as someone who Like time's gone by and she can't accept it. That's what Maria says. And then Maria admits me neither, I guess. Like maybe Maria is scared to look at that in herself. But Klaus sees these two women as having the same wound, he says. He thinks that Sigrid and Helena are 
the same person and that that's what the play is about. That they're, they're about a woman at different stages of her life. The young stage at 18 and then the older stage when she's in her 40s. And he feels that Maria is the only one who can play Helena because she played Sigrid. So she's the only one who can be both characters who are the same person. We know that Wilhelm was working on a sequel to Maloya Snake, and it was supposed to be about Sigrid 20 years later, and Maria would rather play that role. Like, she can't let go of Sigrid. She always wants to be her. I don't even know if it's always about age, because she's willing to play Sigrid 20, as 20 years older, but she doesn't want to play Helena. She sees Helena as cruel and desperate, and later on she says defeated and sad. And I guess in Sigrid, she sees somebody as more powerful, more liberated, more dominant. And that's what I think Maria doesn't want to lose. And Juliette Binoche said this in an interview where... She said that Maria is scared to lose her power. So I think with aging, and I talk more about aging in my episode on opening night as well, if you are interested in that topic. Like with aging, it's not just about like losing your youth or losing your beauty. I thought it was interesting when Juliette Binoche used the word power, that as you get older, you lose power. And we see how that happens to Maria in this film. So it's not just about, oh, you know, you get wrinkles and you get gray hair and maybe you feel invisible or people don't see you the same way. You lose your power because there is a, a kind of, it's fleeting, but there is a power in being young and beautiful and being a young, beautiful woman. Your looks can be a kind of power. It's fleeting. I think it's an illusory power. It's a power granted to you by men as long as you fit what men want you to look like. It's not like a power that I have. I mean, yeah, I'm young. I'm 31, but I'm not beautiful. You know, I'm not desirable to men. So I have never felt any kind of power in that way or power over men. I don't even know if it is power, right? Because it's so dependent on men granting it to you. And if men grant it to you, then they can easily take it away. And if you think about it with actresses in the industry, you know, in the film industry, they are dependent on men. They are at the mercy of men and men's power. And sometimes your beauty is all that you have, maybe, to balance out the real power that these men have. If Maria had not been very beautiful when she was 18, would Wilhelm have cast her in the play? So in that way, her beauty was a kind of power. Her beauty was an entrance into the acting world. But of course, Wilhelm, at the end of the day, is the one who granted it to her because of his attraction to her. Her aging, it is losing her power. It is a fear of losing power and of losing also relevance. I think that Maria worries about not being relevant anymore and that somebody like Joanne doesn't see her as mattering or being important. And I think that can be painful too when you just don't feel relevant 
when people don't talk about you and they don't care about you and they don't think that you matter. And that can be painful as well. And when Maria was talking about this, how she wanted to play Sigrid 20 years later, she couldn't let go of Sigrid, right? But Klaus tells her, or Klaus tells her, Sigrid and Helena were always the same person anyways. So Sigrid would have just become Helena. And I do think that younger women can look at older women and I think there can be a fear there of becoming them, a fear of growing older, you know, like 20 years go by and, you know, when you're 20, you don't think about it because you're 20 and you're young and you have your whole life ahead of you, but eventually time is going to pass. There's no way to stop it. 20 years go by and you are older and those young women who feared becoming older women, now 20 years have gone by and you are the older woman. Like, that's what happens. Like, Juliette Binoche, when she was in Rendezvous, she was 18, 19, 20 years old. And now she's 50 years old in Clouds of Sils Maria. Time has passed for Juliette Binoche. She used to be that young ingenue. And now she is the older, venerated, highly respected actress that Maria Enders is. When you're young, you think you'll be young forever. And then all of a sudden, 10, 15, 20 years go by. Like I'm only 31, but I remember being 20. It wasn't that long ago. It was when I was in college, which I talked about earlier. How, I mean, I remember being in college in 2010 and I was only 20 years old and now a decade has gone by and I'm 31 years old. And sometimes I look at the gap between that, like, what have I done? What have I done in that decade? What have I accomplished? And there's this fear that comes into me of, I'm not doing enough. I'm wasting time. I'm, and this was something that hit me when I turned 30. And I talk more about the feelings that turning 30 brought up for me, like really surprising feelings that have really overwhelmed me, honestly. And that I didn't know how to put into words until I was talking about Opening Night by John Cassavetes. So you can listen to that episode if you want like a more in-depth discussion about it. But it's just like, how did a decade go by? Like, how did that happen? I, I don't know. Like, I, like time just, you get to a place where time goes by so fast. And I know it's cliche, but the passing of time is a really big theme in this film. Actresses wear the passing of time on their faces and on their bodies. It's etched into their skin. We watch them get older. You can go look at a film that Juliette Binoche was in when she was 20 years old. You can see her face and her youth and her beauty. And then you can see her at 50 in Clouds of Sils Maria. And you see the passing of time in one person, in one human life, where she's 20 and now she's 50. Actresses are aging in a public way. They are scrutinized for it. They're put under the microscope for it. And I think Maria feels that. And she, I think in her mind, she's still Sigrid and she's just not able to accept that now she's Helena. Now she is older. Recently, I came across these fascinating photos by Justine Curland and she's published a book of them and it's called Girl Pictures and I've just been enamored with them and fascinated by them. She took them in the late 90s into the early 2000s and she just went on this road trip across America and she would take pictures of 
teenage girls and she would allow the girls to participate in the creation of the photographs. So the girls would come up with scenarios and poses and like the narrative or the story that they wanted to tell through the photograph. And often it was girls in the woods, like just playing with their friends. There's so many fascinating photographs in this book and in this series. There's one with like two girls outside of like a Toys R Us store. And then there's another one of girls laying in the snow, just girls playing with their friends and like these are just teenage girls living their lives and there's like an innocence about them and there's a joy about them and I love seeing girls hang out together and seeing that friendship and these photos really reminded me of my own girlhood and I've already gotten to thinking about some episodes that I want to do in the future about girlhood about films that explore girlhood and I would love to use those films as a way to talk about my own childhood and my own experiences as a young girl because I was a lot like these girls in these photos playing in the woods getting into a little bit of trouble and roaming around I loved seeing those photos and then in an interview, Justine Kurland was talking about how a lot of these girls, I mean, it's 20 years later, right? So now these girls have kids of their own. They have spouses. They have careers. Like the passing of time has happened. They're not those girls anymore in those photos. They have grown up. It's just I don't know. When I saw the photos, I was like, oh my gosh, these young girls. And then you think about, oh my gosh, they're like in their 30s. They're probably in their late 30s now. They probably have children and families and all kinds of stuff. You can just feel that passing of time. You see that with Maria too, where she doesn't want to be Helena. She wants to be Sigrid. In her mind, she's 20 years back and she's still Sigrid. She decides to do the play and she ends up going to Sils Maria to rehearse for it. And her and Valentine read the lines throughout the film. And Valentine is really like her partner in that and helping her read through the lines. In a simple way, this film is about two women rehearsing a play. I mean, that's like a really simple way to describe the film. There's a lot of complexity and a lot of layers in this film. We've got Maloya Snake. We've got <laughs> a play. We've got, you know all kinds of stuff going on, right? But at the heart of the film, we have two women, right? We have the relationship between these two women. Sils Maria is where Wilhelm wrote Maloya Snake, the play. And I do feel like in a way, Wilhelm is kind of this ghost haunting Maria a little bit. And I think his absence is kind of palpable in the film. When Maria is in Sils Maria, she goes to see Wilhelm's widow Rosa and they go to the place where Wilhelm killed himself and it's near the Maloya Pass or also called the Maloya Snake and that's when Rosa explains that it's a cloud formation that is rare and unexplained it's a sign of bad weather it's these clouds that come from the Italian lakes and they wind through the valley like a serpent so it's really just this cloud formation that's the Maloya Snake and that's also when we see the the old film, the vintage film that's like a century old of the Maloya snake cloud formations. And this is the film that Olivier was inspired by. It is something that I love about the film is it's not afraid to 
add to add in images of the landscape and nature and clouds and like I was on Twitter recently and I just kind of tweeted randomly about how if I made films I would just want to film the clouds and the trees and the wind and um, the rain and I would almost make like these silent films or something or if I did add anything or any words it would just be like excerpts from my diaries. That would be the only language or audio included in these films. I love films that include nature and I mean really the tree of life has already been made so there's nothing I can make that would ever compare to Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, right? And that's pretty much what The Tree of Life is. It's just filming rain and butterflies and clouds and trees. So my film that I would make has already been made. So I enjoyed seeing the clouds and the mountains and all of this stuff in the film. And Olivier in an interview said that those are the things that are permanent. Those are the things that have this history. They're not really subject to the passing of time the way we as human beings are. Like a mountain is you know, a mountain feels eternal and the clouds, this is the same cloud formation that's been happening for a century. So nature and all of these things, they are permanent, but we as human beings are impermanent. We are ephemeral and we're not here very long in comparison to those things. The scenes of Maria and Valentine rehearsing the play are very interesting and these are the scenes when Maria's insecurities and worries and all of that come up. They come bubbling up to the surface because she's doing the play but she doesn't really want to do the play and there are times when she tries to get out of the play but she can't. She just hates doing some of these scenes she gets really upset at times like when she misses a line and she talks about how um the original in the original play Maria played Sigrid and a woman named Susan Rosenberg played Helena. Maria can remember how Susan Rosenberg would would become Helena and like the pleasure that she got from playing this defeated woman, in the words of Maria. She got a pleasure out of it, but it used to disgust Maria. Maria just sees Helena as a sad, pathetic character. You know, at least Sigrid has her youth and her beauty, but what does Helena have except her obsession with Sigrid? She has this obsession with a youth she cannot recapture. I think we see Maria scared to go into this dark character. And a fascinating part of this film for me is that it is a portrait of an actress. It is a portrait of an artist. What it brought home to me was the toll that acting can take and the struggle that it can be to become another person. Although I think Kristen Stewart said in an interview, like you're never really becoming someone else. It's always you. The, the actor or the actress is always still there and still present. It's always them because it's impossible to be anybody else. But I do think it's interesting to see the process of acting because we don't often get to see that. We go see a film and we see the actress. We don't always see how she creates this character, how she takes the character home with her, how she lives with the character. She goes over these lines over and over and over again for hours. Like you don't just 
turn that off. There's really no escaping it when you're doing a film or you're doing a play. And that can take a toll on you. That can affect you emotionally and psychologically the way that it does Maria. And something similar happens to the character in Opening Night that Jenna Rollins plays. She plays this character named Myrtle Gordon. And she has trouble with the character that she's playing who is aging. Maria has this same repulsion or disgust for a character that she's supposed to be playing. So how do you become this woman? How do you play her if you hate her and you are disgusted with her and you can't see the humanity in her? And that's Maria's dilemma throughout a lot of the film is that she doesn't know how to play this woman because she doesn't see her humanity. She hates that Helena is defeated by her age and her insecurities she feels that Helena is ready to kill herself before the play even starts and that she use, she uses Sigrid as a weapon. So she also sees Helena as a self-destructive character. When Maria was young, she only understood Sigrid. She only could understand Sigrid because she was 18 years old. But now she has to understand Helena and she couldn't have done that at 18. There's no way that she could have done that. She can only do that with time and age, life experience, and the knowledge that comes with getting older. And I think it's fascinating, these rehearsal scenes. It's like, as Valentine and Maria are rehearsing these different scenes, sometimes it's like they're not the characters, or it's like they're saying things to each other as themselves. Like these lines could double as their own conversation. Like there are just different scenes like that. And they do mirror the relationship a little bit between Helena and Sigrid because that is a personal assistant relationship. Obviously, it's never sexual with Valentine and Maria, but it has a lot of the other elements to it. So there are times like when they're looking at each other or they're saying these lines and you could absolutely believe that they're not like reading from a script. It seems real. It seems natural. And at times there's this blurring between fiction and reality or there's this like sense of life imitating art. You can see that like as they rehearse, there's this jealousy a little bit that develops between Maria towards Valentine. And there's certainly a dependency between the two of them, the way there is with Helena and Sigrid. So there's this blurring, this fracturing, this dissolving of the line between fiction and reality that's also really fascinating in the film. The thing about Valentine is that she's able to see Helena's humanity and Maria isn't. She just can't see it because Maria's scared of her. She is scared of this role and she's in a place in her life where she's going through a divorce. She's going through a lot of things. She even tells Klaus at one time that she feels alone and vulnerable too vulnerable to do this. So for Maria, her life is falling apart. And the way Juliette Binoche described it is like, this is a woman who's lost everything. And that's also why she decided to cut her hair so radically and like chop it off is because she felt like Maria had lost everything. So she might as well lose her hair too. I mean, now that I think about it with Maria, she's really a woman who's being stripped back or like she's having so much that she depends on stripped away from her. And even at the end, when Valentine leaves, that's another thing that she loses. So she's lost Wilhelm. She's losing her husband through divorce. And then she loses her personal assistant who disappears. She's losing her sense of self too. 
she's losing her ability to act because she feels overwhelmed by this character. She feels scared of this character. So she's deeply vulnerable and deeply alone. She's scared of this woman. She's scared of this part. She's not ready for it, but she plays it anyways, but she's not ready for it at all. And it doesn't help either that the original actress who played Helena, Susan Rosenberg, died about a year after I think the film was done. So Maria's also a bit superstitious and I think she associates Susan's death with with Helena's suicide. I mean throughout the film like Valentine sometimes has a hard time seeing Maria's perspective. Like why Maria is scared of aging, why she's scared of playing Helena. What what does it mean to be on the other side of 20 years? To be closer to the middle of your life than the beginning. At one point later on, Valentine talks about perspective, right? And I'll talk more about that scene in a minute, probably. It's easy to say certain things when you're 22 or 23. It's a lot different when you're 50 or when you're in your 40s. Life is different. Your experiences are, are different. Why doesn't Maria have the right to be upset or to be fearful or to worry about aging or to worry about being older or playing a sadistic older woman that she doesn't really want to inhabit because of the darkness of that character or what it will make her feel about herself or what parts of Helena could be in Maria and Maria doesn't want to face those parts of herself, the parts that are needy the parts that are obsessive and messy. And that's kind of the interesting thing I think about Joanne is that Joanne is just so visibly a mess and so visibly a train wreck. And she kind of gets to be. We allow teenagers and 20-somethings to fall apart and to be emotional and to lose it a little bit. You think of the Lindsay Lohans and like the Britney Spears when she went through her breakdown and younger women are allowed to be messy. They're allowed to be train wrecks. But when you get older, when you start getting into your 30s and 40s, there's not as much tolerance for that. There's not as much tolerance for you being obsessive or furious or falling apart or crumbling. Like as you get older, you have to keep it together. You've got to be strong. You've, Joanne gets to fall apart. She gets to be crazy. She gets to, you know, have her tantrums and her fits and her spectacles out in public. But Maria... You know, I think Marie is one of those people where it's like on the outside, she seems like she's got it together and she's this dignified older actress, but then inside she's falling apart. And we see that in some of the rehearsal scenes where she just loses it. She's crying. She's mad. She's angry. She is vulnerable. And in some ways she's breaking down at times and, and women as they get older, don't have as much space to be emotional. I mean, are we ever allowed to really be emotional? I don't know. I think we're always accused of being hysterical or dramatic or over the top. (laughs) And even the young women who are messy train wrecks, they get punished for it. They get their faces splattered on all the tabloids. They get made fun of by people. Think of the way Amy Winehouse was treated when she was alive and the way she was turned into a joke and because of her addictions and her struggles. And it's really tragic when you look back on it, the way she was treated by the media. 
do we really let women fall apart? Do we really let them be messy and emotional without there being a punishment? Not really. And so I would argue that maybe Maria, you know, just as Joanne is having like her breakdown, in a way Maria's having like a midlife crisis breakdown type thing. We don't get to see that quite as often. We do see that in opening night. I do feel like Myrtle in that film played by Jenna Rollins, she's having like a midlife crisis. And also we tend to associate midlife crisis with like men instead of women. And so that's something else that I like about about Clouds of Sils Maria is we get to see a woman struggling with insecurity, struggling with the passing of time, getting a little panicky about getting older and what that means and her mortality, wanting to stay relevant and vital and all of those things. I like that scene where Maria and Valentin go swimming and I love how Juliette Binoche just gets naked and she did that on purpose. She wanted Maria to be liberated in that way. And they said that Olivier just told them to do what they would naturally do. So Kristen left on her bra and panties. It was interesting to me because you would kind of assume that the younger one would get naked and, and, you know, that the older woman would like leave her clothes on or be more modest. But I really loved how uh, Maria was the one to just strip it off. And she has like this liberation and this freedom about her while Valentine is more covered up and she doesn't feel comfortable taking her bra and panties off. And that's also the scene where Valentine says that Maria is jealous of, quote, my time, my thoughts, maybe my affection, unquote. She feels like Maria is needy, that Maria wants more of her. So we can start to feel some of like the tangled complexity of that relationship. I think Maria is fascinated by Valentine because Valentine gets to go and do the stuff that Maria can't do anymore. You know, Valentine can go off to parties and she can hook up with guys. She can take the car, drive to Italy or something, isn't it? Like Lake Cuomo or something. She's still at that stage where she has that freedom. You know, Maria's coming off a divorce and she's older. You know, when you're in your 40s, you don't get to go to house parties and hang out with boys, right? You don't have that same freedom. I wonder if Maria is um, is remembering her youth through Valentine or living vicariously through Valentine or thinking about who she used to be when she was that age. And in some ways, Valentine is a reminder to Maria of her youth and what she's lost and what she can't recapture and what she can't have again. So that's, that's a dynamic too, is like, is she jealous of Valentine because of what Valentine still gets to experience and have? And Maria has lost that and she'll, she'll never really get it back. And maybe she doesn't want Valentine to go off because she's lonely. We don't see Maria with friends. <laughs> we don't see Maria really doing anything except hanging out with Valentine. So she's also very dependent on her for companionship, approval, and affirmation, and <laughs> and all of these things that she wants from Valentine. Valentine is in her 20s. She's at the beginning of her life while Maria is in middle age. It probably makes her think about her mortality it's a difficult thing to deal with. I mean, Maria even feels jealous when Valentine is a fan of Joanne. Valentine says that like Joanne's her favorite actress and Maria feels kind of hurt by that. So there's definitely like a jealousy there too, where she wants Valentine to admire her. She wants Valentine to love her as an actress, right? And 
she kind of feels threatened by Joanne and compares herself. I mean, maybe she feels like she can't measure up or she lacks something that Joanne has and she doesn't. That comes out when they go to see Joanne's mutant film. There's like some kind of mutant film. And Valentine is trying to get Maria to see to see the role or to see the film in a deeper way and she doesn't want to she's not really open to that you can see joanne start to creep in between them a little bit and how maria is jealous and feels hurt that um valentine maybe doesn't love her acting as much as she loves joanne and when she compares herself to joanne she feels like she's lacking something and when they're out hiking valentine tells her you know that she feels like maria is not listening to her really i mean throughout the film valentine gives really insightful commentary she talks about films and actors and actresses in like really thoughtful ways And I do feel like there are times when Maria just sort of laughs at her or doesn't listen or because of her age doesn't take her seriously. There can be this tendency on the part of older people that when they're engaging with younger people to be dismissive of them or to laugh at them or to act like because you're young, you don't have any problems or you don't have any issues. Yeah, I'm 31 years old, but by the time I was 20, I had been through things that most people don't even go through until they're maybe in their 40s. You know, a lot of people don't start to lose parents until they're like in their 40s maybe. And I lost a parent at a very young age in my teens and that's not a common occurrence. That's still a pretty rare experience. So while I was 20 years old, yeah, I was 20, but emotionally I was devastated and I was in pain and I was suffering. So I didn't get to have some kind of carefree youth. So yeah, I was young, but did I feel young? Did I get to have the experiences of youth and enjoy them? Not necessarily. There can be this tendency on people who are old, like in their 50s or their 60s. And I'm not saying all of them are like that, but I have encountered some people like this who act like because you're a certain age, because you were in your 20s or your 30s, that you don't suffer or you don't struggle or like, it's just really a strange thing to me. When I'm engaging with people who are younger than me, And sometimes I do. I don't have like a lot of really young fans, I don't think. But when I am engaging with listeners who are maybe like a decade younger than me, I just try to be compassionate. They may say awkward things or they may, they may have views that are different from mine. You know how young people are. You think about when you were 20 or something like that and you just have to let people learn things in their own time. Like when somebody's 20, they're not going to have the knowledge and wisdom of like a 40 year old. You have to let people live and learn and make mistakes and grow from them. But you can do that without being dismissive. You can engage with somebody younger and listen to them and respect them without dismissing or laughing at what they have to say. And I think like when Valentine is sharing her thoughts at times, Maria just doesn't even listen or she doesn't, I don't know, she doesn't take it seriously because it's coming from somebody half her age. But in reality, Valentine has really insightful, smart, compelling things to say and and thoughts to share. You know, Valentine tells her that just because Maria hates the play and the character, she doesn't have to take it out on her. Valentine says that she's just doing her job. I actually really admire Valentine. I, I love her ability to give her opinions, 
even when they clash with Maria's. That's hard for me. It's hard for me to express an opinion if I know that the other person will disagree with me or they might get upset with me. I like that Valentine is true to herself and I feel like I'm always sometimes molding myself to make other people feel comfortable. I even do it on this podcast where I don't tend to talk about films that I don't like or directors that I don't like and I don't really bring up criticisms of films that often because I'm just genuinely worried about upsetting people or getting a backlash from people and so I don't like to wade into controversial subjects. I don't like to bring up certain things because I'm just worried that I'll be attacked online for it or that there will be like a backlash against me or personal attacks or something. And I don't know if I'll ever get to a place where I am comfortable being more critical. I mean, I don't know. It's I don't feel comfortable with it. I feel more comfortable just talking about things I love. Like I don't want to rock the boat. Like I've I've been like that my whole life. I hate confrontation. I hate upsetting people. But at the same time, it's like, but how do you stay true to yourself? How do you have opinions and share them? You have to be willing to maybe upset people sometimes. Maria does get upset, you know, occasionally with Valentine and some of the stuff that she says. But I, I've always, lo- I always loved how Valentine just stuck to her guns, right? And I love this scene where Valentine tells Maria, quote, at 20, You saw Sigrid's ambition and you saw her violence because you felt it in yourself. The text is like an object. It's going to change perspective based on where you're standing, unquote. This is when they're hiking Maloya Snake. And I love that. I love the way Valentine is really tapping into the way that the play, Maloya Snake, the way it changes over time, the way it changes as you change and it changes as you age, as you grow. I, that's really fascinating to me. And I think it happens in general with art that what, what messages you get from a film at 20 could be very different than the messages you get from a film at 30 or even 40. Like I've talked about this in another episode. You're going to have a different experience with a film as you get older. And the way you see it at 20 is going to be different than how you see it 10, 15 years later. And that's a really fascinating part about doing these episodes because sometimes I am revisiting films that I saw like a decade ago. Uh, Several episodes this year that I've done in 2020 have been of films that I had not seen for like a decade. So revisiting them was really powerful. I mean, one example would be Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter or Jean Vigo's La Delon. Like those two films, I hadn't seen them for almost a decade. And what they said to me and what I got from them was so different now that I'm older now that I've had different experiences. And so she is right that not just the text is an object, but a work of art, a book, a film, an album, a song, a painting, any kind of work of art is an object that's going to change based on your perspective of it. And you're going to see it differently at 40 than you did at 30. You're going to find things in that work of art based on where you're standing in your life and what stage you're at and what experiences you've had. 
And I love how Valentine is trying to prod Maria to think deeper, to go deeper, to go further, and to not just see Helena on the surface, but to see her complexities, to see her humanity, to see her fears and her obsessions, and to not dismiss her. I mean, if you think about it, you know, society dismisses older women. They dismiss the Helenas and the Marias of the world. But Maria is also dismissing Helena because she's an older woman. I mean, she's doing the very thing that she would not want someone else to do to her. And it's strange because Maria feels the jealousy. She feels jealousy over Valentine. But yet she can't understand why Helena would have jealousies or Helena would desire a younger woman. I don't know if it's that Maria doesn't understand it. She's disgusted by it. She's disgusted by Helena's obsession with youth and desire for youth. I think that's what turns her off is that Helena in in that relationship doesn't have the power. Helena is the one who is powerless who is at the mercy of this young girl, who she has given her power to. So I think she sees Helena as somebody who has forfeited her power, and that disgusts her. Maria got to play Sigrid. She got to play the powerful one. Now she has to play the powerless one, and I think it reminds her of her powerlessness. Her powerlessness against the passing of time, her powerlessness against the changing world. I think the um, the internet is an important part of this film. It's almost like a character a little bit. The world around Maria is changing and she's not changing with it. She's very disconnected from pop culture. She's very out of touch, out of the loop. Like she didn't even know who Joanne Ellis was and Joanne's really famous. So social media and the internet are rapidly changing the world too and Maria can't keep up. And I think she's worried about obsolescence. I think she's worried about oblivion and irrelevance and all of those things that people like Valentine, people Valentine's age, are not going to know who Maria Enders is, but they'll know who Joanne Ellis is. And she's powerless to stop that. So Maria is a powerless character in some ways. She doesn't like that. She doesn't like losing her power. I thought it was interesting in an interview that Juliette Binoche said that she herself doesn't worry about aging at all. That it's not something that she worries about or thinks about. It, it's just not a concern of hers. This is also the scene where Valentine disappears. She just disappears. The way, kind of way, kind of the way that Helena did, where she's just hiking and she disappears. This is also where Maria sees the Maloya snake. She sees the clouds gathering. But when she turns around, Valentine is gone. And then we see these beautiful scenes of the clouds moving and forming into the Maloya snake. The role of the landscape and nature in this film is beautiful. These are the things that are eternal and unchanging. While we are so impermanent and so transitory against the backdrop of time. And I think that our impermanence, our mortality, is one of the most difficult aspects of the human condition. If not the most difficult, I would I would argue. And when I saw these scenes of Maria hiking, Maria in nature, in the landscape, 
often with Valentine too, it reminded me a little bit of Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura, which I have an episode about. And there's this scene in that film where the the people, um, they're on this boat and one of the women goes missing and they go to like this island. It almost looks volcanic. It looks very ancient and barren. They go to this island to search for her and it's just this massive island and their bodies are so small against it and you just feel the smallness of humanity against nature and against the passage of time and and all of these things. I kind of felt that with the landscape in this film. You know, the clouds and the mountains and the trees. And these are all just like massive permanent structures, everlasting. And then here are these small, tiny, pitiful humans <laughs> against that backdrop. So I think it emphasizes or um, makes you think more about your mortality as well. And I read some interviews with Juliette Binoche and she talks a bit about aging. Obviously, aging is the primary theme of this film. That's what Maria is struggling with. She's struggling with getting older. Playing Helena is this manifestation of that, that she is older, that she's 50 years old or close to 50 years old. And she's this defeated, desperate woman obsessed with recapturing her youth, recapturing something that she can't have back. And in an interview, Juliette Binoche said, quote, but it's certainly something that is not easy. You've got to face it and have the courage to transform because as you're losing something, as you're aging, you're also gaining something. A lot of the media emphasizes how you can keep young, but we never emphasize how much you gain from experiencing life, unquote. I just love this. Like, why do we see aging as a loss, as a lack? I really wish that we could see it differently, that we could see aging as something more positive, as not a lack, not a loss, but as you are acquiring something, you are gaining something, you're gaining experience, you're gaining, you know, a lot of women, and I talk about this in my opening night episode too. Again, I think if you love this film and you've not seen opening night, you would find it compelling, I think. It's a more emotional film. It's a woman having more of a breakdown and a break with reality than in Clouds of Sils Maria. But it's, it's my favorite John Cassavetes film, Opening Night. Why do we see it as a loss, as a lack? Why do we not see it as, as you're gaining something, as your life is enriching? And a lot of women talk about how as they get older, they feel more liberated. They feel more free. Their life doesn't revolve as much around men and the male gaze and satisfying what men want them to do. A lot of women do talk about like in their 30s and 40s, how they they feel more confident in themselves. They feel more comfortable in their own skin. They know what they want. They feel more ambitious because they have experience and they have knowledge and they've grown. And so I think there's also a way that we could talk about age. Yeah, I mean, we should obviously acknowledge that it's scary to age, that 
it comes with thoughts of your own mortality and and all of that. And that's something I've struggled with since turning 30 is it just sort of brought home to me, wow, I've been on this earth 30 years and what do I have to show for it? What have I done? I, I started to just get really scared about like wasting time and watching life pass me by and watching time pass. And it's, you know, it's been difficult. It's been a little bit overwhelming, you know, to see all of that. I'm trying not to let it be a negative, right? Like I've made it to 31. I've been through a lot in my life. And sometimes I didn't know if I would make it to 30. I didn't know how I would survive. So, I mean, some pretty amazing things have happened to me, you know, with this podcast, pretty much. This podcast is really the only good thing in my life right now. I do feel like as I've gotten older, I've gotten more confidence. And I think if you listen to an early episode of this podcast, I am truly a different person than I was four years ago when I started this, that I have more confidence in my opinions, that I speak more clearly and I have more of a voice, right? Like, I think that. I think my voice is way more confident and way more assertive and just stronger. Like, I just feel like I have a voice and I'm not afraid to use it. And I'm not afraid to share my opinions about films. Yes, I will not share my negative ones, but I will share my positive ones. <laughs> so I love what Juliette Binoche said about that. There's a gaining that happens too. And that shouldn't be denied either, is that you don't know everything about life at 20 years old. You still, you do have a lot of living still to do. That doesn't mean people should be patronizing towards you. Doesn't mean people should be dismissive or laugh at you when you share your feelings and your struggles, right? But I think we can acknowledge that at 20 years old, you know, you haven't experienced everything. There's still more of life for you to live and you don't know any, don't know everything. Just like at 30, you don't know everything. At 40, you don't know everything. We're all still growing. We're all still learning. The central, one of the central things of the film is just Maria's inability to handle the passing of time. And I understand that. She wants to be Sigrid, but she has to be Helena. Valentine wants her to accept that she is Helena. But of course, Valentine is still young. And she doesn't know what it's like to be in the shoes of Maria. To be older. To have half your life behind you. So it's easy to judge Maria or to see her as vain. But I think she's deeply disturbed by the passage of time. She can't comprehend it and I don't think she can accept it. I think it's okay to let her have that fear. And, and to let her struggle with it. And sometimes Valentine doesn't have as much compassion, right, as she could. There's that scene in the film where she's, you can't have the well-rounded career that you have and still want the privileges of youth. Remember when she says that? And then Maria's like, like really shocked by it and kind of upset to hear that. It's, it's sort of a tense scene between the two of them where Maria feels a little bit attacked by that and kind of like, so I don't have the right to want to be younger. You at 24 or whatever, your early 20s, you're going to tell me that I don't have the right to want to be younger or I don't have the right to miss my youth or something like that. I like Valentine, but I do think sometimes 
she's not able to understand Maria's perspective. Just like Maria has trouble understanding Valentine sometimes, it goes both ways. And that's just the generational divide or the generational gap between them. And it's okay. It's okay that they're from different generations. They're at different stages of their life. They're not going to understand everything about each other. Like it's just not possible. Just like me at 30, I'm not going to understand everything that a woman in her 60s and 70s is going through. I haven't been through it. (laughs) I haven't had those experiences. All right, I just want to round out this episode and talk about Maria and Joanne. Because I think Joanne is an interesting character played by um, Chloe Grace Moretz, where I think through her, Olivier is looking at internet culture and social media and all of those things. And I really love this quote from Juliette Binoche where she's making this distinction between celebrities and stars. I love this. Quote, you have to make a distinction of celebrity and stars. Celebrity is a personality and is pushing into the world being seen. Star has to do with the cells. It's the light in the cells. It's something beyond comprehension. It's something that happens in the person that is magical. I think it's important to see the difference because there's a way of using those items in the promotion of yourself, in the promotion of your image, your ego, unquote. I love that. There's a difference between a celebrity and a star. And when I think of a star, I think of like the old Hollywood stars, Paul Newman, Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor, Gene Kelly, like they were stars and they don't make them like that anymore. And I often lament this, that it's like we don't have stars anymore. And I wonder sometimes like, is the reason why I don't like modern actors and actresses today? Is it because I see them more as celebrities than than stars? And I don't see that magic in them. Of course, I will not name any of these people because they might be people that some of my listeners like or something. But for the most part, when it comes to modern actors and actresses, like young ones, like in their 20s or something, I don't have any interest in them. Uh, like, um, Like, really, there's not many that I like at all. And I don't think they're that talented and I'm not really impressed by them. And I do think that it's because they're more part of celebrity culture and they're not really stars. They don't make Julia Roberts type actresses anymore. To me, Julia Roberts in the 1990s was just perfection. Like, I love everything about her. I have seen a lot of her films. I love Julia Roberts. To me, she was a star, and there's certainly nobody like that today, in my opinion. So Joanne Ellis, who plays, um, who's going to play Sigrid, She's more of a celebrity. She's done superhero movies. She's 19. But she does have a theatrical background. And she wants to do this play to probably make herself look more mature. I kind of saw her as like a Lindsay Lohan type character. Where she's in the tabloids. She's fodder for all of that. For the paparazzi. And despite her being very toxic and self-destructive. There's been nude photos leaked of her. She shot up her boyfriend's house. She's been to rehab. 
so that she wouldn't have to go to jail. Despite all of this, Valentine really admires her and says she's like brave enough to be herself. I mean, I'm not sure I agree with glorifying or romanticizing very troubled and self-destructive behavior. I think there can be a danger in that. And Maria doesn't see what's so great about it either. Valentine happens to admire her. That's another thing that Maria is sort of jealous of. And it's fascinating in the film how Maria looks up things about Joanne through Google and through the internet. She finds pictures of her. She finds videos of her. That's primarily how she gets to know Joanne at first. It's just that whole internet, social media culture that even six years later, six years after the film was made, is still really relevant. The world that is depicted in the film has become even more our reality. Celebrity news, stars doing crazy things and getting caught on tape. Even the scene where Maria is Skyping with her agent and she's trying to get out of the play of Maloya Snake. I mean, now we Skype and video chat all the time. So it was somewhat prescient about the ubiquity of the internet and social media in our lives. Though it was 2014 and much of that had already taken hold, but I do think it remains remains relevant or like think of when Joanne is in her superhero film or the mutant film that's even bigger now I mean there's a lot more superhero films that are made these days Maria eventually meets Joanne in person and of course Joanne puts on her best you know her best little performance of how she admires Maria so much and all of that she says that Maria is so brave for taking on the the role of Helena She says, quote, it's a way of dealing with time, unquote. That's what Joanne says to Maria. But of course, all of that changes a few weeks later when they're in London and they're doing the play. And Joanne's life is a train wreck again. She's dating a guy who's married and this guy's wife ends up trying to commit suicide So that creates a big drama and there's like all these paparazzis and stuff like that. And then we finally, in the last few minutes of the film, maybe like the last 10 minutes or less, see see the, the play, see some of the play on the stage. And there's this devastating scene where Maria approaches Joanne about playing a scene, about the way Joanne is playing it. She thinks that as Sigrid, Joanne should wait longer before leaving Helena at the end of a scene. And Maria tells her that that's what she did when she played Sigrid. And she thought that it was more dramatic. But Joanne says that Helena is washed up and the audience wants what's next. Those are some of her words. But the big, the big deal about this scene, and I think what cuts so deep about it, is that she's not interested in listening to Maria. She's not interested in taking advice from Maria, from learning from Maria. I mean, think about it. Maria has accumulated several decades of acting experience and knowledge. If you're 19 or 20 and you want to become a great actress, who else would you want to go to or talk to? You think about Juliette Binoche as an actress. She's like comparable, I would say, to like Meryl Streep. I mean, personally, that's, I would put her in that league. She has worked with so many different directors, played so many different roles, had, has such a body of work. So she's very comparable to the character of Maria Enders. You know, Maria has accumulated all this experience and knowledge 
why would Joanne not want to learn from her? Like, I understand you wouldn't want to do the play exactly as Maria did because it's 20 years later and you, you have to make the role your own. But to so cruelly dismiss and cut down Maria, because that's what she's doing in the scene. Joanne has the power. Joanne completely rejects what Maria says to her. And you can feel Maria being hurt by that. You can see it in her eyes. Like her eyes start to tear up in the scene because I think she feels completely dismissed and completely rejected and irrelevant. That's the thing is that she's scared about irrelevance of not mattering, of not being respected, not being taken seriously, treated like she's nothing. And really all those fears that she had about aging sort of crystallize in that moment and actually come true if you think about it. That here is this 19 year old kid talking down to her. I mean, she's talking down to her. And it's humiliating. It is a deeply humiliating scene, I think. And she just has to stand there and take it. And she has to smile. Then the play starts. Or we see Maria take her take her seat on the stage where the play's about to start. And that's where the film ends. It's sort of this devastating scene. And she has to keep going. She has to keep doing the play. There's no stopping it. She can't do anything about it. She's been dismissed by Joanne. And Joanne has that power to cut her down, to cut her down to size and put her in her place. So it's very humiliating, those power dynamics. I I, I think that scene had always stayed with me as well. I just couldn't even believe it. But before that scene... There was also one where Maria speaks to another director about a film that she's going to do, and it's about mutants. (laughs) Maria suggests Joanne to him, thinking that the character should be played by a younger actress, thinking that the youth of Joanne would be an asset, but the director isn't interested in that celebrity culture or internet gossip even though he's part of that generation and he's young himself. He says that for his film, he imagines this character to be beyond age, beyond time. I think that's fascinating. And Olivier in an interview said that this scene is supposed to show us that Maria can, she can leave behind Helena. She can leave behind this role that has been so upsetting and disturbing to her and has made her look at something like aging that she didn't really want to look at and she didn't really want to dig into. As an actress, she can go play a different role. That there's this role of Helena for now, but she can close the chapter on that once the play's over and she can go and play this other character that has nothing to do with aging. And she can just be herself, right? She doesn't have to think about what it means to be a woman who's 50 and an actress. She can be beyond age. She can be beyond time. And I do think that's fascinating and um, kind of a beautiful thing, I think, about being an actress, I would think, is that you can play all these different characters. You can be all these different people. And through those characters, you can explore these different emotions and subjects and experiences. That's the great thing about art is the way that it activates our imagination. It activates our mind and our body and our heart and our soul. 
and we can just explore it. Just me doing this episode, I've gotten to talk about so many issues and about aging and the passing of time. Like, I just want to be honest that I absolutely struggle with the passing of time. It is something that I struggle with constantly. I am a deeply nostalgic person. I mean, just today I was listening to my playlist that I have of music from the 1990s because that is my favorite music um, (laughs) that I love to listen to. Like I was listening to some Natalie Merchant and some Mary J. Blige, just you know, all kinds of amazing people from the 1990s. I love all genres from the 1990s. I listen to all kinds of stuff. Like I get really frozen in my nostalgia. I know that it's not necessarily the best thing to stay locked in the past and to not be able to progress and not be able to accept life as it is now. It's like, I want to go back to when I was a teenager. I want to go back to like that girl I was, you know, before my father died, before I lost so much. Like I ache to go back to that. Like I just, it's unbearable to me that I can't go back to it. It's unbearable to me that the past is really gone. It's unbearable bearable to me that time does pass and that everything is passing. I can't stop it and I don't have control over it and there's nothing I can do about it. It terrifies me and so while I understand that Maria is combative about this character, I just have a lot of sympathy and compassion for her that she's struggling with it and that she's scared and that she's worried and doesn't mean that she should be worried. I mean, she's a respected actress. She gets to play amazing roles. Does she have a lot to fear necessarily? Maybe not. Even very famous women, they become they can become invisible as they get older. I think it's a valid fear she has, but she has to find a way to move past it. She has to find a way to let go of the past because she can't recapture her youth. She can't go back to 18 when she played Sigrid. And would she really want to? Would she really want to go back to 18? She she has a well-respected life and a well-rounded life, the way Valentine put it. And that's something. She has awards and accolades and a career. So she has the good, she has the bad. Aging is scary and it is hard. And I still don't know how to deal with the passing of time. I don't know how to deal with mortality and impermanence. And I just, I don't know, I can't put it into words, but it's something that I have really struggled with. I know that I have to move past this. I know that I have to let go of my youth and I know that I have the memories of it, that I'll never be able to go back to it and relive it. I'll never be able to recapture it. Like it's over and it's gone. Like my childhood is over. My youth is over. I feel like in a lot of ways and I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know how to cope with it. (laughs) So I think I'm like deeply sympathetic to a character like this or a character like Myrtle in Opening Night where they're confronting these questions. 
They're confronting the passage of time. They're confronting aging and what that means for their careers and their sense of self and who they are and who they don't want to be. They don't want to be like a defeated, pathetic, older woman who, you know, wallows in misery and hates herself. Like they want to be women who, even though they're older, you know, is still vivacious and vital and desirable and all those things. And Maria's like that. She doesn't want to be like washed up. She doesn't want to be invisible. She doesn't want to be desperate and jealous and bitter and angry the way Helena is. She wants to she wants to be better than that, above that. But as we see in the scene with Joanne, as powerful as Maria still is and well respected and venerated and has a career most people would envy, even she can get put in her place by somebody else by a younger woman it can hurt and it can sting so it can happen to anybody yeah for me the heart of the film is about aging the passage of time very complicated tangled relationships between women it's a rich film there's a lot to explore there and I really loved when Kristen Stewart in an interview said that when it comes to Valentine she likes to imagine that Valentine sneaks into the theater on opening night of the play of the Maloya snake play at the end of the film and sees Maria in the role. And I kind of love that idea. I love imagining that Valentine shows up and watches it. I will stop here. I hope you liked my discussion of this film. I did my best and um, I hope you liked it. I will stop here. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Paulina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now. (music) 